In this series, we're discovering many of the names and the titles of God. And the one that we looked at last week is the term, the Hebrew term Yahweh, which means He is. And uh, we also looked at El Shaddai, which is the Almighty God. Adonai, which means Lord or owner or, or master. We looked at the term Kana, which is the jealous one. And El Elyon, which is the most high God. And there's a lot of names, a lot of titles of God that we haven't covered and we won't be able to cover in great detail, um, but they are beautiful and significant in their own right. And one of those titles for God is, and I've mentioned this briefly before, it's El Roy. And that sounds sort of funny, El Roy. You know, it sounds like Roy Rogers had gone to Mexico. Are you El Roy? You know? But, you know, in Spanish, El means thee. But in, uh, in Hebrew, El means God. It's just the generic term uh, for God. And uh, we wouldn't spell Roy R O Y. We'd probably spell it R O I if we were to translate it into English. And what Roy means in Hebrew is look or see. And so El Roy means the God who sees. Now, the person who uh, first mentioned this as a name for God was a young lady by the name of Hagar. And Hagar, as you may recall, was the servant of Abram's wife, Sarai. And Hagar was also the mother of Abram's first son, Ishmael. And you can imagine this might cause some problems in the family, and sure it did. In fact, uh, you know, I always uh, laugh when young men say, oh, wouldn't it be great to have two wives? No, it wouldn't be great at all, you know. I think Abram would be able to tell us that it would cause some type of strife, great strife in life. And so that's what happened there. And when things got bad, as you can imagine, between Hagar and Sarai, Hagar ran away. Uh, But the angel of the Lord visited Hagar and comforted her. He promised to provide for her. And so she returned to Sarai And Hagar made this remark. She said, he, meaning God, he is the God who sees me. He's the God who sees me. Isn't that just the most wonderful message for today? That he is the God who sees me. What a powerful truth. That God is the God who sees where you are. In every sense of that word. God is the God who sees who you are. God is the God who sees you, the real you. God is the God who sees all of your failures, but he knows that you are not a failure. God is the God who sees all of your flaws, and yet he knows that you are designed exactly the way He wants you to be. God is the God who who looks at you. His eyes never leave you. His eyes are fixed on you. And God is the God who chooses to love you. What a powerful 
message. Because sometimes, if we were to be honest, we have problems with who we are, don't we? I mean, sometimes we look at ourselves and we see the the faults and we see the flaws. We see the failures. And we don't like what we see when we look at ourselves. But I want you to understand something. That the problem is not your flaws. It is not your flaws. The problem is not your faults. The problem is not your failures. The problem is the judgment that you pronounce on yourself. The problem are the false conclusions and the lies that you tell about yourself. And here's how I know this to be true. Because God looks at the same you that you look at. And God sees not only all of your faults and your flaws and your failures, but He also sees them more perfectly than you do. And not only that, God sees the faults and the flaws and the failures that you're blind to. And yet the same God, when He looks at you, He comes to a judgment, He comes to a conclusion that you're beautiful, that you are wondrously made, and that you are loved. And so the problem, the issue, has nothing to do with you having faults and flaws and failures. We all have them. The issue is that the God who sees has pronounced a different conclusion, and he is always right. Now, there is another way in which God sees you. And you might wonder, well, how could this be? You know, you see somebody, you just see them, right? Well, not exactly. There's another way in which God sees you. He sees your needs. And not only does God see what you need, He sees your needs before they even become needs. And this is a powerful message in itself. Because not only does God see your past, which you can see imperfectly, and not only does God see your current situation, which you see imperfectly, but God sees what's coming around the corner. God knows what you don't. God knows what's just over the hill. And you might say, well, I'm over the hill. Well, maybe so. Like one great theologian, I think it was Linus and the Peanuts character, he said, when you get over the hill, you tend to pick up speed, you know. God sees what's coming. And he's already made provision for it. He sees what you cannot see. You know, the term Yahweh, again, it means he is. That means that God is ever-present. That means that God exists because he exists, and for no other reason outside of himself, God exists but sometimes ancient israelites would do something they would they would highlight a particular facet of yahweh's character how by adding another term to the back end of yahweh they would add another word to it and it would be like looking at a diamond you know you look at a diamond and say oh what a beautiful diamond and then you get one of those loops you know what i'm talking about where you can see that diamond up close And then you turn that diamond and you look at the different facets that it has and the light hits it at a different angle and you see different parts of that diamond. God is like that. 
And yet every diamond that I've ever seen has flaws, but God has no flaws. But he's like that diamond. And we see things just a little bit differently. And so the Israelites would sometimes add a term to the end of Yahweh's name to indicate a different facet of his character. And the term that indicates that how uh, it indicates that God provides, he is the Lord who provides, is the term Yahweh Yireh. And I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 22 in your Bible, if you have access to a Bible today. In Genesis chapter 22, and this term Yahweh Yireh apparently was first used by Abraham in this chapter. <clears throat> and we read, and I'm, I'm going to make a few comments along the way as we read through a major portion of this chapter. But in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it begins this way. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, let's stop right there. Because every so often, God tests our faith. He tests our obedience. Now, why? We don't like the tests that we go through, do we? We don't like the trials we go through because it causes us to go through a hard time. We don't like that, do we? To be honest, we, we really don't. But why does God test us? Why is it good for us? Well, I'll tell you, my son Timothy is a math teacher, and a sixth-grade math teacher. And last week, he just began teaching a very important concept, how to subtract a negative. Most of these sixth graders were not prepared for how to subtract a negative. Sure, three apples minus two apples is one apple got it easy but three apples minus a negative two apples is five what in the world is this teacher talking about right and so they're a little bit slow some of them are to to understanding this concept and and really beginning to grasp this concept uh, but there's coming a time when if he were to ask them a question, do you understand? They might all say, oh, yes, Mr. Rhodes, we understand. Please move on to something better, you know. But there's coming a time when he's going to give a test. And the test shows what's true. The test tells the truth. Does Johnny really understand? Or is Johnny just playing along? Same thing's true of us and God. Do we really understand? Do we really have faith in God, or are we just uh, playing along? Well, so the test comes in. You know, God tested Job, didn't he? I mean, practically took everything away from him to see if Job would remain faithful. In the New Testament, God tested Peter, didn't he? He gave Peter three opportunities to not deny Jesus. Peter didn't do too well on that test. And God tests Abraham here in Genesis 22. In fact, God tested his own son. He spent 40 days in the wilderness. And Jesus passed that test, didn't he? So if God tested Job and Peter and Abraham and even his own son, why in the world would we ever think that God will not test us? He absolutely will. And so don't be surprised when the tests come, when the hard times come. The question is not, oh, no, I'm having a hard time. I'm going through this trial. I'm going through this test. Oh, why me? It shouldn't be that at all. It should be, how can I obey God? Even during the hard time.
And so God wants to test our obedience. In Genesis chapter 1, we can, or 22, verse 1, we continue. It says that Abraham, Abraham answered, Here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, God said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. This means death for Isaac. Now, some people question, why would God ever ask this of anyone? I mean, isn't that just a terrible thing for God to ask? What kind of God? would ever ask someone to do such a terrible thing. You know, and those questions might be fair to ponder in ethics class or philosophy or, or even in church. But I'll tell you one person who did not question God's character, and it was Abraham. Abraham didn't question God's character. Abraham simply obeyed. And maybe that's the difference. Maybe there's a difference there between Abraham and so many of the rest of us. Maybe Abraham believes in God while other people want to rush to question God's goodness or rush to question God's judgment or rush to even question God's existence. But Abraham did what he was told. He didn't question God's character. He went forward with the test. Now, here's the question. What exactly was God testing? What exactly was he testing? I mean, was this simply a test of Abraham's obedience to see if his obedience to God was so strong that he would even give up someone that he loved. Well, there's that element there to be sure, okay? But Hebrews chapter 11 tells us the exact nature of the test. And we read in Hebrews 11, verses 17 and 18, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Listen, he received the promises. And yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Do you understand what's going on? God made a promise. God made a promise to Abraham. The promise was, you will be the father of a great nation. And it will come through your son Isaac. That's the promise that Abraham believed. And now, God is saying, kill Isaac. What do you do when obedience to God appears to destroy God's promise to you? Is your faith strong enough to obey God even if it means perhaps that God's promise might somehow not be fulfilled. Is your faith that strong? You know, let's just be real for a second. The faith of a lot of people, a lot of Christians, it's this strong. God, I love you. I embrace you. I will obey you. Oh, wait. Obeying you means I go through a hard time? If I obey you, bad things might result in my life? Let's talk about it, God. Let's negotiate something here, God. Abraham didn't do that. Maybe that's one of the reasons he's called the father of our faith. He showed us what real faith is. 
It's obeying God all the way. You study church history. You come across people like the Anabaptists. They don't make a lot of news, but the Anabaptists, who were on the, the inside of that great reformation that happened, they quickly began to realize that they had to obey God in everything, even the little things. And the Anabaptists were known for giving up their very lives because they believed in believer's baptism. They believed that after they got saved, that they should be immersed in the water. And the other religious authorities of the day said, if you continue to do this, we will baptize you to death. And we will burn you. And we will kill you. And the Anabaptists said, we must obey God, even in the little things. Now, if the stormtroopers come in this building and they say, are you going to continue worshiping God? And they put a literal gun to our heads. How many of us are going to say, let's find an alternative? How many of us are going to say, oh, we can change a few things around here if that offends you? Abraham was of the faith that said, I must obey the word of God. Whatever the consequences. So what do you do? When obeying God's word conflicts with common sense, where do you go? What's your authority? If your greatest authority is common sense, we'll do what you want. But if your greatest authority is the perfect word of God, then you must obey God. Abraham chose God's word. We read about it in verse 3. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Now, how in the world could Abraham be so confident that he and Isaac would both return? Here's why. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told exactly why. Verse 19. He, Abraham that is, Abraham considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Abraham was willing to go forward with this. And he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead if it came to that. Genesis 22, verse 6, So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Here's Isaac carrying the wood to the place of the offering. Verse 7, Then Isaac spoke to his father and Abraham and said, My father... And he replied, here I am, my son. Just as a side note, please look and pay attention to Abraham's responsiveness. Because in a few minutes, Abraham's going to have to respond to somebody else. And he says the same thing, here I am. He says, here I am, my son. 
Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. Abraham said, God himself will provide. That's the word, Yireh. God will provide the lamb. And then the two of them continued on. Here's the two of them. Abraham, what must he be feeling in his own heart? What must he be thinking in his own heart? Taking his only son, the one that God promised would produce a great nation, taking his only son, and he's getting ready to sacrifice his own son on the altar. What kind of pain or emotions must have Abraham gone through? And I want you to consider something else. You know, somebody else was there who was watching the whole thing, and it was God. God tested Abraham, and now God is watching this man, this faithful man, who is passing the test. He's watching him walk with his son to the place of sacrifice. I wonder if God in his heart said, wow, this man is the real deal. I don't know. But God was watching this man and his son take his son to the place of sacrifice. And that, again, is something that God himself would later relate to very well. God had given Abraham a command, and now God is witnessing the obedience. Verses 9 and 10, we read, When they arrived at, that, at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, a lot of people say, wow, what faith Isaac had to carry his own wood to the place where he was going to be sacrificed. I don't think Isaac was that, uh, that knowledgeable about what was going on. I mean, if he really knew, he wouldn't have had to be bound, right? I mean, this is daddy saying, hold this rope, and then he starts tying his son up with it. His son's, what's going on? And so Isaac is bound with the rope. He's placed on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham was going to go through with it, believing that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he replied with that same responsiveness as before when he was talking to his son Isaac. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. I mean, for Abraham to obey God, he needed a sacrifice, and God had already provided one. Verse 14, and Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. Yahweh. Yara. 
So today, it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. The word provide is a fantastic word, and I'm talking about the English word provide. It's a beautiful word. It's from two Latin phrases. Pro, meaning before. Vide, you know we get the word video from it, meaning to see. The word provide in English beautifully illustrates that the Lord sees beforehand. He sees what we need before we ever need it. He is the Lord who provides. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, and these are so, so powerful words, By myself. I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Do you see what God said? We know the end result. We've read the final chapter. We know that Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, and by extension, the Messiah of all of us who would believe in him, we know that he came through Abraham's lineage. And God was saying, Abraham, because you obeyed me, because you obeyed me, I will save people all throughout history. What an incredible act of faith Abraham displayed. What obedience he displayed. You know, sometimes people wonder, well, what kind of God would ask a father to kill his own son? Here's the answer. Only the kind of God who would do the same. God would never ask anything of anybody that he would be unwilling to do. You see, God gave Abraham a substitute sacrifice so that Abraham's son would not have to die. But when God sacrificed his own son, God's Son became the substitute for us. He became our sacrifice. When you and I truly understand the beautiful nature of the Lord who provides, Yahweh Yireh, we must understand that this is not just something that God did for Abraham some 4,000 years ago. God provides for us today. And one of the ways, in fact the best way, God provides for us today is that before you were ever even born, God provided for the forgiveness of your sins. God provided a way for you to have eternal life. God provided for each of us to be a part of God's family. How? 
Because God became flesh. And it was the Son of God, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross to pay for our sins. He is our sacrifice. In other words, He paid the penalty that you and I should pay because of our sin. And because He paid the penalty for our sin, then we can have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can have fellowship with God. Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. There's no other way to the Father. You can't be good enough. You can't trust Muhammad enough. You can't trust Buddha enough. Because Muhammad and Buddha and all the other so-called saviors of the world, none of them died on the cross to pay for your sins. None of them rose from the grave. But Jesus did it all. God provided for you before you even knew it. Sometimes people wonder, you know, well, I, you know, what if I give my life to Jesus and then, and then later I sin, later I mess up? Well, let me tell you as someone who, who's an expert in that, okay? I've sinned so many times that since I gave my life to Jesus, so many times, more than I could even know. But I want you to understand something. When you place your faith in Jesus, at that moment you're saved. If you sin later, you're still forgiven. Why? Because Jesus died 2,000 years ago. He died for all of, your, all of your sins. And the sins that you committed before you got saved and the sins that you committed after you got saved, they were all still future when Jesus died. 2,000 years ago. Do you understand that? The provision is already there. Complete forgiveness. That's why the Bible says in the book of Romans that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. And so when you look at yourself and you see your flaws and your faults and your failures and you want to condemn yourself, God says, no, there's no condemnation. You're completely forgiven, completely loved, completely accepted, just the way you are. And so today, if you have yet, in your life, decided to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, it's very simple. Understand who you are with Christ, how you stand before God, that yeah, you have sinned. You do have to admit that. But you also understand that you now believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one in whom you place your faith, your trust for salvation. And now you commit your life to following Him all the rest of your days.